thank you. All right, yes, we do have one couple, one family in our church that drives a Prius. They're not right with God, but they <laughs> we're working on them, amen. Uh, all right, I said last night, I talked about, or the other night about mint, which I hate mint. So somebody brought me. So I see how that goes. So, so I showed it to my wife, and she's like, oh, I love it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it, so. All right, so got that out of the way. Let me also say <clears throat> something else I hate is Hummer H2s. And so if uh, somebody wants to bring me a Hummer. I would take it. Matter of fact, I, I figured out uh, uh, somehow between now and the time I leave, I got to figure out how to get a, black, a backpack blower in my carry-on <laughs> so that Pastor Reno follows me to Wisconsin. Because we love getting them back in Wisconsin. Amen. We get them there. We try to flatten the tires on their rental cars and, and uh, whatever we can do to keep them there. But, uh, so I got to fit a backpack blower in my rental car. And uh, so it's, he's so easy to tweak. Just move something out of place a little bit. And he just, you know, drives him nuts, which I enjoy uh, doing that. But um, I'm trying to get this mint out of my mouth. Now it's all stuck right to the roof of my mouth. There's water under here? Oh, okay. I assume it's not this Germex. All right. Has this been under here every night? That would have been good information to have. Uh, are y'all thirsty? <clears throat> Am I making you thirsty? Okay. All right. Take your Bibles, if you will. It's, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with having fun. And as uh, long as it's the kind that, you know, doesn't dishonor God or you know, cause problems uh, in your walk with God. And I believe this, I believe that the more we desire to hear from God, the more likely we are to hear. Uh, it is, we approach revival meetings sometimes in the wrong way, and you folks have been very kind, uh, very complimentary, very encouraging, and I appreciate that. Uh, but what we really need to do is to make sure that we're right with God. Sometimes, you know, people say things, and, and, they're, and it's very kind, okay? Uh, reminds me of the guy. Um, I don't know if the joke works over here, because I don't know if anybody here knows where, uh, you know, this stuff in, in Minnesota, you know, so Ely, Minnesota. Ely, Minnesota is a northern Minnesota town up near, up not at the border, but near the border, but it is, it is nowhere, okay? Uh, Ely, Minnesota is one of the coldest places in the United States regularly. It's just, I mean, it's just, there's basically not a lot up there. And so uh, I remember hearing the story about in Duluth, uh, Minnesota, uh, there was a, uh, a man who was a, he was the, uh, one of the, he worked in the produce department and was a produce manager uh, at this grocery store. And so he said, uh, there was this lady that came in, an elderly lady, that said, I would like a half a head of lettuce. 
And he said, well, ma'am, our lettuce is all right here, all, you know, several varieties and whatever. He, he said, no, but I only want a half a head. He said, well, you, we sell it by the head, and so, you know, you'll buy the head and, you know, do what you want with the second. But she said, but I don't need a whole head. I just need a half a head. And this went back and forth for several minutes until he finally just, okay, whatever. So he said, ma'am, I'll, I'll be right back. So he grabbed the head of lettuce, and he went in the back. And he was in the process of cutting it in half, going to rewrap it for this lady. And the manager of the store comes out and says, what are you doing? And he said, this old bag out here wants a half a head of lettuce. And as he said that, he turned and he pointed like this and didn't realize she had followed him into the back room. She was standing right there. And he said, and this nice lady would like the other half. The store manager saw what had happened. He said, you know, when you get done there, come see me in the office. And so he went in the office and he said, I saw what happened. You got yourself kind of in a jam, but he said, I like the way you think on your feet. So he said, I, I think you've got potential. He said, I'd like to send you to Ely, Minnesota to be the store manager of the Ely, Minnesota store. And the guy said, Ely, Minnesota? There's nothing from in, in Ely, Minnesota, but... Ugly women and hockey players. And the manager says, my wife is from Ely, Minnesota. The fellow said, oh, what position did she play? <laughs> so sometimes you're, you know, you're just saying things to, you know, to be kind and whatever, get out of trouble, I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, that we sometimes think about revival and, and honestly, to, to really work out what needs to happen in the average Christian's life is not done in four days. In four days to a week, all we do is kind of get our minds turned around, aimed in the right direction. But one of the things we think about when we think about revival, we're just waiting, okay, waiting for the the preacher to come and bring some message that's going to just kind of, you know, just wow us and get a hold of us and shake us. And, and that's the wrong way to think about revival. Because if we're waiting for God to come and knock us in the head and drag us uh, to a place of surrender, uh, then we're a long way from where we need to be. But I do believe this. I believe that when we get tired of ourselves, we get to where we are sick about our lethargy, sick of unanswered prayer, tired of powerlessness of Christianity, weary of sitting in a pew and nothing changing in our heart. We get sick of that. We get weary of that. And we decide we are going to seek the Lord. Now you're not far. Because the Bible talks about those that will seek after the Lord happily if they may feel after him and find him because he is not far from every one of us. But it comes to us to feel after him, 
to be tired of status quo, to be tired of, of, of yeah, singing songs that, that we don't really mean. We're just reading the words on the page. Uh, we long for the joy that, we, that other people seem to have. And we wonder sometimes, is it for real? And it is. It is. But it's available to every one of us. But we have to get to the place where we desire it more than the things of this world. And I, I want to, again, I, this, I have so many messages swimming around in my head that I would love to preach. But I, I'm going to take us this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, And look in verses 3 and 4. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Father, I pray this evening as we've read your word that you would open our hearts, our minds to understand, our hearts to to long after it, and a desire to act upon what you show us. Lord, nothing earth-shattering, but your word is life-changing. Tonight, I will not say anything that has not been said, but I pray that because we find the intersection of your truth intersecting with a hungry heart, that it might do its work and change lives tonight. God, I pray that it will be evidenced by what happens beyond tonight, that there will be a group of people that sell themselves out for the glory of God, that begin to walk in the Spirit and not the flesh. Lord, I pray that we would understand that we serve a God that knows us. Lord, beyond anything else, we might be found in Him as we ought to be, drawing more and more like to be like the image we see of Christ. In his precious name we pray, amen. Some time back this last summer, I was uh, listening to a sermon or reading a sermon. Honestly, I can't, I can't remember which, but I, 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 I don't want to say I enjoy reading sermons. I read sermons because I need to read sermons. I, uh, the preacher doesn't get preached to as much as, as uh, an average person in a church. And so that's my way of getting preached to is I'll read uh, old sermons. And I like old ser sermons. I like, uh, if I'm going to watch a Western, I'd like to have a Western from like the 19, you know, 40s you know, uh, 1950s, just after the, the thing that the Westerns that looked like they were lip syncing, but before they inst inserted all the, the swearing and stuff. You know, just right in that time frame. That's, that, that's, I, that's my, my genre if I, if I want to watch a Western. And so uh, reading uh, about the late 1800s to the early 1900s is because if you get, if I get back past much older than that, the reading becomes very difficult, very labored. I mean, I've got one old commentary of 
of the Bible. It's, it's, just, it's not a big, thick commentary, but it's just this commentary of the Bible. And the guy is just going along, and it's early 1800s, and he's going along, and you know, as he's ta- talking and explaining verses, all of a sudden he switches into German. You know, and he just goes along, because you're supposed to know German. And then he'll switch into some other language and then back into English. And he's not giving you something and explaining it. No, he just, he just is multilingual and he just figures if you're smart enough to be reading this, you ought to know that stuff. And, and that, that's just, okay, that's just crazy hard for me. I, I, I don't want to work that hard at it, okay? But when you get into that late 1800s, the language becomes a little, it's still, it's still elevated, can I say it that way? They, they speak in a way that, that stretches uh, the vocabulary, stretches the, the phraseology and things like that, and it challenges me uh, in a way that modern writers rarely do. So I was listening to this sermon or reading a sermon, and the man mentioned another sermon called The Four Men. And it sounded vaguely familiar to me, so I began, you know, I did like everybody else. I went to Google University and, and, uh, and I checked it out. And, and I found that there was this late 1800s Scottish preacher named James Stalker. And when I read the name, I said, that sounds very familiar. And so I went to my bookshelf, and my bookshelves, my bookshelves are packed with books that are just for looking at. There's no way I could ever read every book in my, uh, I got all these books from, uh, there was a friend of my dad that pastored in Austin, Texas for years. When he went to be with the Lord, my dad got a bunch of his books and everything, he had doubles. He gave me all of Brother Pat Everett's books. And so I had tons of books. Then when my dad, uh, as he downsized, he was no longer pastoring, using evangelism and he didn't have a place for all, so he gave me a bunch more of his books, hundreds and hundreds of books. And then when he passed away uh, uh, two, two and a half years ago now, this past January 15th was two years, and uh, went to be with the Lord. And I got a bunch more of his books. So I've got books. I've, my, my shelves are actually jam-packed with books. And I've got enough boxes of books in a classroom next to my office that if I lost every book in my, they just all disappeared, I could refill my shelves. And I wouldn't even know that they changed. I mean, it's honest truth. There are just so many books. But I began digging through and I found a book by James Stalker called The Four Men. And, I, and what it was, James Stalker, this uh, late 1800s I, a Scottish preacher, had come, he was in the United States and he was lecturing at Yale University. Yale University started in 1701 and most of the, I don't know if you realize this or not, most of the major universities uh, of the uh, United States began as, in, in part at least, as a place to train clergy, to train preachers. And so James Stalker gave a series of lectures at Yale University. Uh, I believe it was D.L. Moody that was there to hear it, was one of the people there who heard it, and urged that they be put in print. And so we have the book, called The Four Men. I read his, his talk on The Four Men from that, and he referenced the verses that we just read, 
from that, the Lord developed this message. And so full credit where full credit is due, uh, that's where I got the, the principle for what we're going to look at tonight. And it's going to be as much Bible study as it is preaching. But I want you to see in this passage something that James Stalker saw. And it's called the four men, and you'll see why in just a moment. He said that in every man there are four men. And they are illustrated here. Let me show you how he uh, breaks that down. First of all, in verse number three, uh, Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, said this. It is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Now, to whom is he writing? The church of Corinth. Who is the church of Corinth? It's a church that he was responsible for helping to start. Amen? You read 1 and 2 Corinthians and you cannot help but, but understand or sense the parental relationship that Paul had or felt with the church of Corinth. That he felt full a liberty to correct, to direct that church because he had been uh, re responsible for most of those people getting saved and then the founding of that church. So he's talking to people that know him fairly well. <clears throat> and then he says, it's a small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. That is men in general. So that's just the world at large, those that might know you in a cursory way, but not well. Uh, the difference between uh, the people you go to church with on a weekly basis would know you fairly well. Your family would surely know you better than that. And then there's those people that you drive past at the end of your block and you wave and they know that, uh, uh, that every you know, Sunday morning you're, you're headed off to church and every Sunday evening you're headed off to church and every Wednesday evening you're headed off to church and, and uh, they've got your pattern down and, and yeah, they know you're Christians, but they don't know a lot about you. They might have spoken to you at the post office or, or might have uh, seen each other at the corner grocery or, or whatever, but just enough to say hello and kind of know where you live, but they don't know you well. And then he said in verse number four, uh, excuse me, verse, the end of verse number three, yea, I judge not mine own self. So he mentions the people that know him well. He mentions people that do not know him well. And then he mentions how he knows himself. But he's, and, and so all of us have the man that we know ourselves to be. Now that's a very personal thing because no one else knows us like we know us. We never fully open our heart to share every thought we've ever had with anybody. Uh, some, some things I think are not worth sharing with anybody. Uh, and so uh, if we have any filter at all, you know, there's, you know, we stop ourselves from saying some of the things that pop into our head. But the truth is, uh, we know more than anybody else, even more than our family, where we stand with God, how deeply we love one another. We, we know what we think. I am the world's leading expert 
on my own opinion. No one knows what I think like I know what I think. My wife knows me probably better than anybody else in the world, in the world, but there are still things that we all have secret. And then he mentions a fourth in verse number four. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. So James Stalker posited that we, every one of us is four different people. In every one of us is four men. We are the man that the world sees us to be. We are the, world, we are the man that those close to us see us to be. We are the man that we see ourselves to be. And then lastly, we are the man that God alone sees us to be. Now these four men all have different relationships with different groups of people. There's, first of all, there's the man the world sees us to be. There are neighbors of ours. We live out in the country. There are neighbors of ours that they know. They know that guy that lives there is the pastor of Twin Ports Baptist Church. Now, I've never even spoken to most of them. They live up the road two miles, and they live down that way, but the word just gets around. We live, um, I'm not sure what the population of Hawthorne, uh, Wisconsin is, 500 maybe. Salute. If you, if you laughed at that, you're dating yourself. Uh, and telling on yourself just a little bit. But anyway, that's another story. Maybe 500 people, and if you know, all you have to do is just go into the little town hall there to vote one time, and they say, "Oh, pastor, I never met these people." Hey, pastor, wagon shoes. I, by the way, I like coming here because it's the only place I can go travel to preach that I know they're going to spell my name right. <laughs> no place else do they spell my name right. And so they, oh, pastor, wagon shoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, and they know we live. We live on Highway E. At the curve in the road with all the split rail fence out along the front. And they, they, they've got that down. They, they, now, they don't know anything more about me than, than it'd be easy to rob us on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, because uh, we're not home. And, uh, and so um, I need GPS trackers, evidently. I just, I'm learning all kinds of things. But, but they don't really know me well. They know what they see. They know what they, they see just going back and forth. My neighbors, uh, the neighbors at the church. This year, I, I've lived there 32 years this September. And for, oh, at least the last uh, five to seven years, I suppose, I've been, I've been praying that the Lord would allow me to get a plow truck. It doesn't have to be fancy. Just an old plow truck. Because I, I don't want to keep shoveling snow. I don't keep pushing snow with a snowblower. And, uh, and we finally, after many, many years, we actually got a little bit of blacktop at the church. Till then, we've been parking on the ground, on the grass. When it freezes, we plow it and we, and we park on it. In the, in the spring, it turns to muck. You can't, there's nowhere to park. So we got a little bit of blacktop. And we've always just kind of depended on a guy in the church here or there this guy has a plow and he'd come in. But, but it was always kind of iffy because half the time their plow trucks broke down or maybe it doesn't fit in their schedule and we need it plowed for a Wednesday night service and they can't get in. 
And it's just always that kind of thing going on. I just said, Lord, it'd be just nice to have an old plow truck that we could keep up with just stuff around here. And about three years ago, I got a call from a fellow pastor, a friend of mine. He says, hey, do uh, you have any use for a plow truck? I said, I've been praying for a plow truck. He said, well, I got one down here. If you want it, you can have it. That's <coughs> what so I thought. Praise the Lord. He goes, now it's not running. Why is it always the junk for Jesus program? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if somebody has a microwave that won't work, they get a new one and give the broken one to the church. Why don't you give the new one to the church? Amen. <laughs> Say, well, yeah, but then I still have a broken one. Then buy two. Get a two-for-one sale. And, uh, and so, so I went down there, and we spent a week, and we got the, got the thing going, and we had to all, just do all kinds. I mean, one thing led to another. And you'd have to see this. It's a beauty. It's a 1988 Chevy um, single cab uh, four-wheel drive truck with a plow that it's not a it's not really a factory mount it's some angle iron that that bubba you know welded together and it's, it's just you know it's odd but but it but it works and there's more rusted away from the truck than still there yeah you, you, you can't walk near the truck because it'll grab you you, you know what I'm, I'm saying? You know, the, the re jagged, rusty edges will grab you. And, uh, and so we got it going, and that's when we found out, after putting about $1,200 into the engine and a, the gas tank leaked and the fuel pump didn't work and the brake lines were rotted and, and it hadn't left this guy's property in, I don't know, 15, 20 years, hadn't left his property. He just, he just plowed his driveway and et cetera. It's only got 57 or 58,000 miles on it. Well, you'd think that'd be a classic. Oh, it's a classic, all right. It's a gem. It's a one of a kind. Well, when we finally got it going, that's when we found out the transmission wasn't shifted correctly. Well, you didn't know that until you got the engine running. Well, now you're $1,200 into it, right? So then I called a guy that I know a guy, and he knows his cousin, you know, his cousin rebuilds transmissions, and he said, I think I have a rebuild kit for that transmission. So this guy, he takes it out, takes it to his cousin, his cousin rebuilds it, brings it back, he puts it back in, and, uh, and they charge me just very little, very little for it. So I got a little over a couple of grand in it, been pushing snow uh, for three years for the church, and it just, it just uh, you know, it just met a need. But, I, so I started plowing around the church. We've got neighbors to the church that won't speak to us because of all the traffic we create, because of all the noise. You know, our services are not quiet, per se, and, and things like that. And they just, they just don't speak to us. And I got that plow truck there at the church, and I, what I started doing with all the neighbors is I'm there plowing, I see a neighbor out, the one guy, he came running out there and he says, hey, you want to make 40 bucks in five minutes? I said, well, what do you need? He says, if you could just push all this snow, we had a, you know, about a 14-inch snow, and uh, he said, if you could just push that back into the yard, he said, I'd give you 40 bucks. And I said, I'd be right over there. And so I, so I pushed the snow back into his yard for him. And I, and I rode that. I said, now I just have one rule. I said, 
I said, I, I, you can't pay me. He said, why can't I pay you? I said, it's not my truck. He said, whose truck is it? I said, it belongs to God. He said, God. I said, yeah. So if you're going to square up, you got to square up with God. He goes, he's like, how do you do that? I go, I think if you came to church a couple times, that'd probably do, just about do it. And I said, listen, I said, seriously, God gave me the truck. And if I can be a blessing to a neighbor, I just want to do it as a neighbor. And, and so then, so he's like, man, that's great. So when he sees me out plowing, he, he walks over, because you can only get so close to the doors. He grabs a snow shovel, comes across the church, and he shovels out our doorways. He also has access once in a while. He works for a towing company that when their tow yard gets full of snow, he has to go rent a uh, skid steer and clear the yard. He'll throw it on the, tow, on the uh, flatbed tow truck. He'll bring it back. He'll bring it to the church, and he'll take all our banks and move them back that you can't do with a snow, a snow plow. And I thought, well, this is all right. Well, there's a guy at the end of our alley. Man, he, he's never spoken. He's been there 20 Probably lived there 25 years. He's never spoken a kind word. I tried to witness to him. I tried to say hello to him. He had never, I mean, he never spoken a kind word to me at all. And so this last winter, I was kind of watching down the alley, and I saw him down there with a snow shovel. So I spun out the other way and went around, and I came back where I, he'd be by my door, and I said, hey, hey, neighbor. And I said, I see you out here struggling with that shovel. He goes, my, my snowboard broke down and this and that, and he, I said, well, would it help you if I push? I said, I know you, you park right up here. He said, yeah, my son parks there. I said, would it help you if I just pushed that that way? He goes, man, that would really help me. And I said, and, and if your truck's not there, I'll back drag away from your garage, and I'll push that snow down that way too. He goes, man, that'd be awesome. And I said, no, I just have one rule. He goes, oh, what's that? I go, you can't pay me. He said, what do you mean? I said, you can't pay me. He said, why can't I pay you? He, I said, because it's not my truck. He goes, whose truck is it? I said, belongs to God. And I said, you just have to square up with God. I said, if you want to be thankful, be thankful to God. Now, he don't know me. All he knows about me is, here's a guy that's willing to come down and push my snow for me. They, those neighbors do not know, I'm doing all that, lady on the corner. She comes out, she goes, would you be able to just, I can't get my car off the street, would you be able to just kind of push this snow back that way? And she said, I'd pay you. I said, I said I'll do it for you, but you can't pay me. Why not? It's not my truck. I mean, this conversation with all of our neighbors. I say, what are you doing? I'm trying to use what God has given me to develop enough of a relationship that eventually, hopefully, we get to win some of these people to Christ. Now, they don't know me. They don't know who I am. They don't know the kind of music I listen to. They don't know where I go. What do I do for entertainment? They don't know any of that about me. And every one of us is that man to somebody. There are those who just know about us. They might know, you know where we live. They might know we have a family because they see us in the yard. But they don't really know who we are.
Now, we may be a better man than they think we are, and I hope we are sometimes, but we're not always. And then there's the second man that those close to us know. That's our family. Family sees us in circumstances that nobody else sees us. They see us react. They get the first reaction, right? Miss Amy got Brother Pastor Reno's first reaction to the garage break-in. I don't know what it was. I trust he didn't swear, amen? Um, I just, because I do know him better than that, so. But you know when the refrigerator breaks down, when the car's broken down in rush hour, there's no money to fix anything, things are not going as, you know, family knows us. They know us far better than the average person, as did the Church of Corinth know the Apostle Paul, so much so that the Apostle Paul could say, uh, there's fornication among you. There's fornication among you. I mean, he was intimate with them, but they still don't know everything about Paul. And so, so we find that we are all that second man. We have those close to us that see us like nobody else sees us. We go to church. We tuck our Bible under our arm. We walk in and say, hey, brother, hey, sister. And they don't know that we've been yelling at the kids for, for 10 miles on the way to church. They don't know that as we were getting in the car, they were laying on the horn, come on, old lady! Come on, get that last hoof in the car and slam the door and let's get to church, to the house of God, to worship the Lord. Hi, Pastor. Hi, Miss Amy. Isn't God good? Your kids are going... Who's that? Who stole my dad? Now, I'm saying it in a way that that we'll giggle at a little bit, but there's too much truth in it to really be comfortable, isn't there? But Paul said, "Even even what other people know me to be is not the final judgment. Because there's the man I know myself to be. And I know more about me than anybody knows about me. I know whether my heart is really in what God is telling us or not. We, uh, a year ago, the Lord gave us an opportunity to start a, a prison ministry. It's, uh, I tried for years to get a prison ministry going, and, and I tried to get into prisons, and they wouldn't let me in. And the, we have several prisons in our city and in our immediate area. They wouldn't let me in. Um, a year ago, just over a year ago, um, after 20 years, a bus girl, a young lady that had come on our bus with, with her sisters, we hadn't seen her in 20 years. She walks in with her husband. And we said, I don't know if you remember the Hool girls, okay? Uh, and so um, one of them walked in and with her husband, and they started coming to church. He's a correctional officer, was a, was a correctional officer at a um, minimum security prison uh, south of Superior, about 45 minutes. And so they started coming, and we've gotten to know them some uh, and uh, spent some time with them. And 
uh, with the COVID everything, she was a nurse at a, at a nursing facility, a nursing home. They started pushing, pushing people, excuse me, to get the, uh, the uh, COVID vaccine and stuff, and she didn't want to do that. Started looking for a job. And at the same prison her husband worked at, they had an opening for a comptroller, a, a, the financial office uh, person to, to handle it. It's a small prison, about 100 inmates. But, so she applied for the job, and she got it. In the interview, excuse me, in the orientation for the job, the captain of the prison there, since it's such a small facility, he is by default also the prison chaplain. Now, he doesn't know there is a book of Genesis. He, not that he just doesn't know where it is, he's never heard of the book of Genesis. And he's the prison chaplain. So in her orientation, he asks her, this girl, again, we haven't seen her in 20 years, asked her, she, he said, do you go to church? Which, that just today, I'm surprised they can even ask that question. Do you go to church? She said, yes, I do. He said, what's a charismatic? She said, I think they're the ones that dance. <laughs> That's all she knew. He said, well, you obviously know more than I do. So I'm going to also make you the assistant chaplain to the prison. She said, huh? He said, do you know anybody that might be willing to come in here and do a Bible study at the prison in-house? Because there, we have some inmates asking for it, and we, I'm sorry, PIOCs. You can't call them inmates anymore. They're not, they're, they're not convicts. They're not inmates. They're PIOCs, persons in our care. True story. And yes, the inmates laugh at that. Yeah, we in their care, all right. So, she said, I may know a guy. She said, Pastor, would you at all be interested in going down to this facility and doing a Bible study? I said, would I be interested? And, and that set things in motion. For a year ago, we started doing that. Um, they let these guys, if they achieve community status, they let them leave the facility during the day they have a, a, a van, a state van, that takes them to different businesses in town where they've got contracts with the prison, and these guys can go in there and work. I talked to the superintendent. I said, hey, if you'll let these guys go off-site off to work, would you let them go off-site to church? He said, what? I said, you know, church, building steeple, you know, church. I said, because I would like to take some of the men, if they'd like to go to church. So he said, let me think about it. He came to the site evaluation, and we talked back and forth, and he said, all right, as long as they are coming consistently to your Bible study, so it's not just a day away, if they're coming consistently to your Bible study, they can send me an email and apply for that permission, and I will vet them again. And so since last summer, I called it my jailbreak ministry. Then, I said, then he said, okay, we'll allow it. I said, okay, here's the next problem. 
I don't have a church van right now to come pick them up. So would it be possible to drive one of the state vans? He's like, well, we had to, so I had to go through another process, get certified to drive the state van. And so now every Sunday morning, I drive 45 minutes south, pick up a state van, pick up some inmates, bring them to church, and, uh, and, they, and they sit right down here in the second or so row right in the front. And, uh, and then I drive 45 minutes back down and 45 minutes back, I, you know, three hours round trip uh, to get them to church. Back. And, and we've been doing that for, since last June or so. You say, man, you must really love doing that. Well, the truth is only I know whether I love doing it or am I doing it for the praise of men? Am I doing it to be noticed? Am I doing it for, you know, to, be pre- to, 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 to try to endear myself to some? Nobody else really knows that because it's a matter of my heart. And I know me better than anybody else knows me. You see, we are, all of us are that third man also that no one else really sees. We can see that you're here tonight, but we can't see why. We can see, you know, that you got your Bible, but we can't really see where's your heart. Are you tired of sin? Are you tired of complacency? Are you tired of lacking power? Are you tired of unanswered prayer? We, we can't see that. You only know that. But then there's the fourth man. I have to hurry and start to wrap this down here a little bit. There's the fourth man that only God knows. God knows us better than we know ourselves because he not only knows what we've done, he not only knows what we think, he knows what we're going to do in situations that we have not encountered yet. And every one of us is also that man. By the way, notice that he says, that's the judgment that matters. It's a small thing that I'm judged of you or of man's judgment. Yeah, I don't even judge my own self because I don't know my own self fully, but the Lord judges me. What God thinks of me is what really matters. I'm not saying the other things aren't important because they involve our testimony. But God knows me like nobody else. Now let me back up. After seeing what James Stalker saw in this passage of Scripture, that in every one of us is these four men. I began thinking about it and meditating on it for several months, and the Lord gave me these quick thoughts. First of all, there is that as the the man the world sees, it's a very cursory, uh, vague assessment of who we are. It's not deep. And we very well may be a better man than the world knows us to be. In other words... Those people that saw me driving in and out of our church parking lot for 30 30 years, now some of them have found out, hey, I'll come push their snow and won't take any money from them. I am trying to show the kind of person that, that God is making me to be so they now know me a little better. They know me to be a little better maybe than they thought I was. But that's not, but, but I may be a better man than they think, but I may not be a better man than they, than they think. Because, you know, well, just because you go to church doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you're really 
holy doesn't really mean you're sanctified. Because every, every week it seems like I hear of somebody that's sitting in a church somewhere. I've had a lot of disappointments in my, in my life and in my ministry. I hesitate to even share them with you because I don't want you to... Sometimes we can get jaded because of uh, the wrong testimony of some. But I remember I had a man, a pastor, come and speak for us at a couple's dinner in February, Valentine's Banquet. And he, he drove to our place and, and he spoke uh, to husbands and wives and within a month found out he was arrested because he had been carrying on relationship with two teenage girls in his church. I just had him stand in my pulpit, considered him a friend, didn't know him, obviously didn't know him that well. It's, it's a sad fact of the matter that there's a lot of things going on in people's lives that nobody else knows about. We may be a better man than the world knows us to be, but we may not. But if we're going to be better than the world knows us to be, it's going to require sincerity and genuineness. In other words, that what we say really matters. That we believe it. That when we, we say that we want to be holy and be right with God, that we mean it. When we tell our families that we're going to try to do better, we're going to try to be the, the man God wants us to be, the husband and the father and the mother and the wife that God wants us to be, that we are sincere in it and doing the very best we can. And by the way, I believe, I think, I think love demands that we assume that about other Christians. Let me ask you this. Um, if you're here tonight and you say, yes, preacher, I, I know I'm saved. And I am already perfect. Raise your hand. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. But let me ask you this. I'm going to ask you a sincere question. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand. But if you're saved tonight, if you're already saved, do you desire to be a better Christian than you are? Don't raise your hand. It's not show and tell time. This is serious. Do you really sincerely want, or are you just here because it's revival service? Do you mean business? Do you really want to sense the power of God? Do you really want to know what it's like to be broken enough to want the power of God so bad. Listen, it is not an easy path to take. There are a few times in my life where I've been so broken that I did not have the strength to stand. Just laid on my face on the ground and could not get up, sobbing and weeping and begging God calling out to God. That's what I believe it means when the Bible says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you want to be 
more than you are with God in your walk with God. It's going to take some sincerity. We have to be open enough to say, I'm not all I ought to be, God. We have to swallow our pride and get to a place of prayer and God and beg God's forgiveness. And God will forgive you. Then there's the man that those close to us know us to be. And we may be a better man than they even know us to be, but maybe not. Not always. But those that are close to us see us in the good, the bad. They see us when we're up and when we're down. They see us at revival. They see us after revival. We might be a better man than, those, than they see us to be. But if we're going to be a better man than they see us to be, it's going to take consistency. Consistency. In other words, not just a show for a week. Right after I first moved to Wisconsin, one of the first, um, I think the first, the first funeral was Brother Mark Preen's mom. And our, our little old church building was, was absolutely packed out. I want to say the auditorium might have sat in that little building, might have sat comfortably 110 people. There were over 400 people at the funeral. There were people standing out in the hall, standing down the aisles. We had TV monitors. We had, you know, there was, it, was just, it was just jammed. And, and his mom was such a sweet, sweet lady. Loved the Lord. Loved the Lord. And I remember there's a, a woman that was uh, coming to the church then, and, and she came up to me after all that was over, and she said, God spoke to my heart. And with Miss Margie gone, there's such a vacuum and a void. And God spoke to my heart, and I have, and I have committed to him to take her place, serving the Lord in ministry and in the church and et cetera. I said, well, praise the Lord. Do it as unto the Lord. You know, I don't think I saw that lady more than one more time. Sometimes we get emotional and we make some little decision that doesn't carry us very far. If we're going to be a better man than those close to us know us to be, if we're really going to strive to advance in our Christian life, it's going to take some consistency. In other words, not just reading the Bible through in a three-month challenge, that's, that's good, but reading it every day. If I, if, you call, if I gave you my mom's phone number, 87 years old, She'd been saved, you know, since she was a, a young teenager, serving the Lord. If you called her tonight, her name is Ruby Lee. She's from Texas. Everybody from Texas, all the ladies are named Lee. Jenny Lee, Ruby Lee, um, Sarah Lee, amen. Um, if you called her tonight and you said, Miss Ruby, you don't know me, but I was talking to your, your son and he gave me your phone number. And I just want to call you and ask you, is there a verse of scripture that you've been meditating on? She'd have a verse of scripture. Right now, I think it would be Psalm 61, excuse me, Psalm 61, uh, six, Psalm 66, 16. Psalm 66, 16. And it says something like, come and let me tell you all that the Lord has done for my soul. 
That's what she's meditating on. Psalm 66, 16, I talked to her a couple of days ago. She said that verse is still just stuck in my mind. She said, I've started writing a devotion. I've just been writing down thoughts, all the things that God has done for my soul. Listen, we're just going to take some consistency if we're going to be a better person than those close to us think, think that we are. Number three, there's then the man we see ourselves to be. And we're pretty good experts on who we are. We know that we're bitter, even if nobody else knows we're bitter. We know we're discouraged. People that, that, that are, are considering things like suicide or, or, or uh, leaving their families or whatever, and nobody else may know. But we know. We know what goes on in our hearts. We know when we're grieving. We know when we hurt. We know when we're depressed. We know when we're discouraged. We know. Now, we may be, eventually, we may be a better man than we know ourselves to be. I believe that about people. I know this. I am far from perfect. But I also know that in my heart, especially when I'm in the house of God, especially when I'm in the word of God, especially when I'm around the people of God, when we start singing these songs that the brother's been leading us in tonight, as we start singing those songs, I start thinking about the words that we're singing, about what Christ has done for my soul. I want to be better than I am. I want to be better than I know myself to be. And I might be, but not always. If I'm going to be better than that, it's going to require humility. I have to humble myself. I'm going to have to get over the show and what people think and say, here's who I really am, but I want to be more. And by the way, if I know that I want to be more, love causes me to believe that you want to be more. You say, you don't know me. No, I don't know you. But I do believe that there's people sitting in this room that come tonight and you're hungry for something from God. You say, how do you know that? I don't know it. I believe it. I have faith that if it's true that I want to be more, I'm not the only one. Some of you young people thinking, well, I, I'm, just a, I'm just a kid right now. No, no, no. You can be more in your walk with God. And I believe you want to be. I believe you want to be a better Christian than some of the adults that you see. I believe you want to be more. I believe you want to be more than your group or your friends. And sometimes you don't say anything because you're afraid that they're going to make fun of you because, oh, you're, you, you think you're so holier than that, etc. And you hold back and you ought not. It's going to take some humility and not caring about what other people think about you to walk with God in a way that exceeds even your own expectations. And then there's the man that God knows us to be. Sometimes we might find out that we're better than we thought we were because we find ourselves in circumstances and the Lord bears us up and strengthens us. In many ways, we are better than we ought to be when we consider the influence of sin on our lives. But we're often blind to our own strengths and weaknesses. Peter's a good example, and I'm going to close. Peter's a good example. Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, what? 
others may deny you. But I'll go with you even unto death. Peter underestimated the challenge. He overestimated his spiritual strength. You say, well, see there, he thought himself to be something when he was nothing. Yes, but what did God know about him? Jesus said, when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. God knew the path that Peter was going to take. He did deny the Lord. You read the passage where where Peter, the, the trial of Jesus, where Peter denied the Lord. And you look for this, where the Bible says, when Peter denied the Lord the third time, and the rooster crowed, the Bible says that the eyes of Christ met the eyes of Peter. That through the crowd and over the distance, their eyes met. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. He was broken because of his sin. It humbled him in such a way that God was able to restore him. And he preached the the powerful message on the day of Pentecost. And thousands were saved. Listen, you can be more than you think you are. But it's going to take God's help. It's going to take, if 1 John 3 and verse 20 says this, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Where are you at today? The judgment that matters is God's judgment. What does he know about you? Do you want to be a better man than those around you know? Do you want to be a better man than you even think you are? Do you want to measure up to God's expectation of you? I believe that there are people here that want more than they have. I don't mean possessions. I mean more of God. I mean the power of God. I mean learning to walk in the Spirit. I mean really getting prayers answered. I mean the peace of God that passes all understanding. Not the kind that the world gives. Jesus said, not as the world gives, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I believe there are people here that want that. And it's available to us with God's help. But we're going to need humility, consistency, and sincerity and God's help. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. The four men.